of Luke today. And we're going to stand in a few moments, but it's, a, it's quite a bit of scripture that I want to share with you. For It's the, it's the familiar story of the nativity that I, uh, and I know that I probably left off some things and prayer requests and situations. I really appreciate the exhortation that JoJo gave to us about don't, not checking out during the, you know, well, I don't have to be spiritual now. You know, this is an opportunity for us to make a difference in somebody's life. Come on, seven of us are on board with this. Come on, stir ourselves up a little bit. There we go. Um, but here in this passage of Scripture, it's, it's the familiarity of the nativity that I want to draw your attention to today. And then I want to share something with you that, that I've been privileged to kind of discover in my personal studies. I certainly am not the first, but it was new to me, an angle of this particular familiar story that hopefully you and I will be able to kind of um, to grab a hold of theologically, if that makes sense to you today. And then maybe even beyond theological, but just in a personal contemplation of your thoughts that you that you meditate on it because if you do so it'll produce life it will in this gospel record of Luke he says and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed sounds like our generation but let's move forward in the second verse and this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria and he went, and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I think that's probably a well-placed fear not. Would you think so if you were camping in the field with the baying of sheep and suddenly the heavens are ablaze with the glory of God? I think it's a well-placed fear not. I bring you good tidings of great joy for shall, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away. We're going to conclude at the 20th verse. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven... The shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, 
which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And I want to encourage you to do so as well. That this is not just the story that is read briefly during the Christmas season. We ponder these things. I mean, you know, there's life in the birth of the Messiah. Come on, I'm talking spiritual life. There is prosperity in the sense that we lift our countenance, we have relationship, all as a result that he came and brought joy to the world. The 20th verse then, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. And that's what I pray happens to you today. I pray that you're going to return from where you came this morning, and you're going to return glorifying and praising God for everything that you have heard and seen. Now, to honor our pattern that we exhibit weekly, and that is to honor the Word of God by standing, would you stand as we return back to just another verse of Scripture here in this same passage that's captured here by the pen of Luke as these words are spoken by the angel to the shepherds. that This lone angel later is joined just minutes later with a host, a heavenly host, but in, as he first appeared, it's a lone angel that appears in the darkness in the fields surrounding Bethlehem. In the 20th verse, after he has said, or excuse me, the 12th verse, after he has said that the good news, that in the city of David a Savior, it's Christ the Lord. But it's this 12th verse that I want to just begin the, the, the thought process. I want to get your mind pondering these things. And this shall be a sign to you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. It's from that exhortation that the angel gives to these unnamed, unnamed shepherds that are watching their flocks at night that I think there's a spiritual mystery that can be revealed if we'll look at it close enough. We'll ask God to open it up for us. I personally believe that you're going to go home today. If you'll, if you'll let your heart beat with mine for a few minutes. I'll tell you, I have been all the ministers that are under the sound of my voice today that have ever had a word from God that has, you have seen something, an angle. We say this often, the word is many-faceted. It is many-sided. And when we see it a little bit different, you know, it's like we saw it for the first time again, you know, and, and, it, and it enlightens the eye. The scripture says that the word of God will enlighten the eye, won't it? So that means if, if, if our eyes are dim, we're not looking at the right thing. Come on, I, I can only imagine that the, the shepherds returned to their flocks with a gleam in their eye. Have you ever had a little battery that clips onto your hat that lights your way when you're out in the field or something or working? I know the fishermen and the, huntermen, the hunters do. I just well, They didn't need that that night. They didn't need a torch because they had an enlightening. They had, they had seen, they had heard, their eyes had beheld, and there was an enlightenment in their heart and in their spirit. And I'm going to pray that's what happens to you. This shall be a sign to you today. Father in heaven, 
I humble myself in the presence of this church family to believe that you're going to help us walk a familiar path, yet at the same time, Father, we're going to look, Father, for unfamiliar truth today. We're going to ask that you quicken things in us, things that others have seen, others have experienced, but perhaps we haven't. We're going to pray that you're going to do such a spiritual work with this word today that not a singular person under the sound of my voice is going to leave today without the brilliance of this light, the word of God, shining in their heart and in their minds. So I capture this in faith, secure it in advance, and I'm trusting you to add your agreement to it. In Jesus' name, amen. For a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to bear with me as I take you on a small journey to hopefully help you to see something at least in the same way that I see it. Now, I, I think we all do ourselves justice when we measure ourselves to the degree, not compare ourselves to others, but we measure our strengths and our weaknesses and we learn to certainly to lift our weaknesses some, but we, all, we learn to trust our strengths, that what God's done in us, who we are. Okay, now with this, today as I minister to you, I'm going to be in my strength, but I'm also probably going to expose a little bit along the way weakness. And the strength that I believe God has given me is the gift of a teacher, which I think is an important gift as a pastor. Paul told Timothy that a pastor needs to be apt to teach, have an ability to give instruction. Now, anybody can claim to be a teacher. To be an effective teacher, you have to be an informed teacher, Amen. right? And you have to have some measure of confidence in your public speaking because the last thing you want is a boring teacher. Hello, somebody. So, but today, but born of weakness is my lack of education. My lack of formal academic education is sometimes exposed. But the strength is, I believe in Ephesians 1 and 17, that God gives us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, that the eyes of our understanding can be enlightened, and I can know the hope of His calling, that I can have a Wilburn education, Wilburn School, that's where I graduated from, without a college degree, but I can still comprehend and understand the Word of God because God, by the Holy Spirit, unveils it to us. Come on. And we understand these things. Now, so with this said, I want to share with you something that you discover as you become more of a student of the Word of God. Hopefully, if you're not a student of the Word of God, and what I mean by that is if the only time you read the Word when it's on the screen... On Sunday, you're not a student of the Word of God. Okay? I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm not saying you're not born again. But you're not a student of the Word of God. One of the things that you'll begin to discover is something that... Well, I'm going to share two things with you primarily. But, but the first is types and shadows in the Word of God. Types and shadows. As well as messianic prophecies. Prophetical words captured by the pen of the Old Testament 
authors and prophets as they were most, most typically prophesying about a, a near event, but messianically, the words of inspiration suddenly looked to the coming of the Messiah. And we're going to do a little bit of comparison for just a minute. Let's start first for just a brief moment with types and shadows. Now, types and shadows are words or things in the Old Testament that foreshadow something that was yet to be revealed, but that was coming in the New Testament. Now, it's difficult, perhaps, for uh, someone that only thinks with an Old Testament trained mind, perhaps a Jew, a Jew in essence, who does not embrace the new, the new covenant of the New Testament because we get the privilege of looking back through the lens of grace into the old and seeing it unveiled. So there was a foreshadowing. So let's take just a moment. Um, so it's not just, but it's words or things in the Old Testament. Now, Scripture uses in the New Testament to, to kind of clarify this thought, not just shadows. You'll find shadows in a couple of places, but it uses shadows or an allegory, figure, pattern, or a similitude. Now, all of these words don't mean the same, but they are akin to each other to create the context for a moment. Let me give you a couple of examples. I think it will help you today. The law was a shadow of the redemption that was yet to come. So let's put a couple of verses on the screen. I think we've got Hebrews chapter number 8, the fifth verse that's going to come on the screen, and, and Hebrews 10 and 1. And so the author says, who serve unto the example, talking about those that serve the tabernacles, have served the example and shadow of heavenly things. The shadow of heavenly things. Matter of fact, not only do you see shadow here, but you also see pattern. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee on the mount. And I'd like to show the 10th chapter in the first verse as well because I think this captures in essence the context. If we can go back to the first verse, I probably didn't write it clear to clarify it for you, but it speaks of the law that is a shadow of the redemption that was yet to come. So the, the, the redemptive practices of the law foreshadowed the redemptive covenant that was yet to come in Christ. Right? Does that make sense? Are y'all kind of trailing with me for just a moment? For the law, he said here, had a shadow of good things to come. But look, but not the very image. It was kind of a darkened shadow. How many of you know you have a shadow, but it's not you? You can't capture it. It's not the very image, but it foreshadows you. And so as the, the, the author here, let's go further. Uh, Isaac and Ishmael, Paul clarified in Galatians 4 that the two sons of Abraham were an allegory as it's translated in Galatians 4. An allegory, an allegory of what? Of the two covenants. One was the covenant of the law, and the other was the covenant of grace. Isaac was the son of the free woman, and Ishmael was the son of the bondservant woman. And so he said, as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, those that are under the law now persecute those that are under grace. So, again, are you seeing? So, hundreds, even thousands of years before grace came, God had already begun to foreshadow the conflict that would arise. Does that make sense? Let's go a little bit further. The tabernacle or the temple was a model or a pattern of the true tabernacle of heaven, just an image of the true tabernacle. God doesn't dwell in buildings made with hands, right? And so, again, I think you can see there were types throughout Scripture. 
we're, we, we begin to, as we study this, as we begin to get into the Word of God, you're going to see that traced throughout all of the Old Covenant were multiple types that I'll allude to a few of these in just a moment. Now, we're probably a little bit more familiar with some of the Messianic prophecies that directly refer to the coming Messiah. They may have been penned hundreds of years in advance. It may have been written about a particular situation, almost like a newspaper article addressing a situation that is being reported in the common era of the author. But in the midst of him addressing a situation in the common era of the author, suddenly something appears. It's prophetical. It's anticipating something that is yet to come. We see Isaiah chapter 7, the 14th verse. It's a familiar verse of Scripture. I'd like for us to put it on the screen. It says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. This was repeated to Joseph in his dream when he was contemplating about whether or not he should take Mary to be his wife because she is born of, uh, you know, she's conceived a child out of wedlock, he supposes. But the angel, when he speaks to Joseph in a dream, quotes this verse of Scripture. I tell you, I like angels that are quoting the Word of God. Amen? Or messengers that are quoting the Word of God. The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. There it is in the song, God with us. Hundreds of years before the conception, the immaculate conception in the womb of the young virgin girl Mary when she dwelt at Nazareth. The prophet Isaiah addressing the issues of his day found himself articulating a divine unction of an event that would be seven years off. And it's a messianic prophecy. The scripture's filled with messianic prophecies that relate to the life of Jesus of all different types. This one was about his birth. I could have filled, uh, brought to the screen some about his ministry such as his healing ministry. Malachi said he would arise with healing in his wings. Isaiah talked about his suffering. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He bore our infirmities and he carried our sorrows and sicknesses to the cross of Calvary. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. The prophet sees it in advance. It's a messianic prophecy and Psalm 22, King David writes, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? David wrote that from the expression of his heart when he felt like God was, was, was away from him at that moment. Did he know that he was foreshadowing the very words of Jesus prior to him giving up the ghost and laying his head down upon the cross? Messianic prophecies, I have to end there because they're so rich, so many, Right? And you need to look at them. Now, here's what I want to share with you. And I want to show you because I'm, I'm going to take you somewhere very quickly. Occasionally, these two revelations of, of, of God revealing himself to mankind often overlap. Not always do they overlap, but types and shadows, think of that with me for a moment, types and shadows. A type and shadow is not a prophecy. It's a, in essence it is, but it's more not the actual exhortation. That's saying a virgin's going to conceive. That was a prophecy. Occasionally you'll see these come together and they will overlap where you have a type and shadow that is, is bound together with a messianic prophecy. And I'm going to allude to that more in just a moment. But here's the purpose of both. Number one, the purpose of both is to create the mystery and then unveil the mystery of God. To create the mystery and then unveil because when that unveiling takes place, 
That's when we see him. Are you there today? So God first creates the mystery, and then he unveils the mystery. What do you mean creates the mystery? I wonder if ever there was a priest when he was, or a Levite when he was flaying an animal in sacrifice. Did he ever think in his heart, why am I doing this? Did he ever question why? In anticipation that a mystery was being created that would one day be revealed. The answer would come. Number two, it confirms the redemptive plan of God when these type of images correlate, both prophecies and types and shadows. What do you mean? Well, it's one thing to say, like Moses. Moses went up into the mountain of Mount Sinai into the darkness where God was and came down with the law of commandments. And if we built everything of our faith upon that singular person's experience, then if he's got everything right, then we're good. But if he gets in error, there's no counterbalance to prove the validity of his experience. But the scriptures that you hold and the prophecies that you trust in are the result of men scattered over times and seasons. Hundreds and hundreds of years, not always in the same place, from all different occupations, from prophets and priests to the common man. And God used them to capture his will, his word, put it together, and it correlates the same thought. That's very exciting. Well, when it correlates the same thought, what does it do? It confirms, number three, and reveals the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it does. That's why Jesus in John chapter 5, the 39th verse, told the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers of his day. And he said this, Search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures. For in them you think you have life, and they are they which testify of me. He was confident that the whole of the subject matter, the whole of the subject, from Genesis to Malachi, the canon of the Old Testament, the canon of the Old Covenant, was to reveal Christ Jesus. He was very confident in that. And he told, search them. Search through the images, search through the shadows, search through the prophecies, search through the psalms, search through everything, the major prophet, the minor prophet. You're going to arrive, if you will listen to the Holy Spirit, you'll arrive at the same conclusion. God would send for this son made of a woman, made in the likeness of sinful flesh, that we would no longer have to be dependent upon a sacrificial system in one unique location that was dependent upon the blood of a bullock or a goat to invite you into the presence of God. But one man would offer himself eternally for all sins, past, present, and future. Come on, allowing us to come boldly unto the throne room of grace and obtain mercy and grace in the time of need. It was the subject of the whole. Okay, are y'all familiar with that today? Let's go a little bit further. Now, since you're more familiar with prophecies than types and shadows, let me take a moment to point out a couple because I'm going to take you to one very important one to conclude the sermon today. So are y'all with me so far? Really? I'm about just to end just barely. It'll go faster as we get into it just a little bit more. Types and shadows. Let's consider a few and see if you understand, if you see a type and shadow, how enlightening it can be for you. Have you ever studied and said, wow, I see that. I'm telling you, you're like the shepherd who returned from seeing the Christ. You're like, I see, I I saw, I saw him. I saw him in the old covenant. I saw, see, let me give you a type and shadow. Moses 
would be a prophet like unto Jesus. In essence, Moses foreshadowed Jesus for just a moment. Let's go further. A serpent on a pole. The people in the wilderness were snake bitten and they were dying. And Moses said, take a serpent, make it, a, or take, a bra- take brass and make it into a serpent, put it on a pole, and we're going to raise it up in the wilderness. And whoever looks at it, not gazes at it, not glances at it, but who? Who looks at it. That a miraculous power from God is going to be released and all the poison that is destroying you will suddenly miraculously be healed. Well, Jesus said in John, as the serpent of the pole was lifted in the wilderness, even so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. And if you and I, with all the issues of life that we face, from sin and sickness and the difficulties of living in this life, if we will but. I think the problem why Christians don't always get free, we think it's all just about conversion. We think, well, I'll pray a prayer and everything will be all right. I believe that Jesus died on the cross, buried for my sins, raised again the third day, I'm saved. No, you've got to look. You want to be free in your mind. You want to have a life that's whole and full of grace. You've got to look intently. You've got to stare at it. You've got to get around on the other side, the back side of the cross. You've got to look at it from below and look at it from above. And if you look at it long enough, I'm telling you there's a divine power of the glory of God that will be released in your life and you will be healed. You will be. How about a rock that watered Israel? A rock that could not be smitten twice. Moses' heir smote it twice because our rock was Christ and he would only be smitten once. Are y'all hearing me? How about a rock that had a cleft in the side of it and Moses was hidden there and saw the glory of God? How many of you know that we're hidden in Christ? Shadows. Are y'all with me? Manna that fell from heaven that we eat of. Man does not live by bread alone. Come on, somebody. Manna from heaven. How about a tabernacle? Or Isaac himself? The son of Abraham. Even people are shadows. Because when Abraham's hand was halted by the angel and he didn't drive the dagger into the beating heart of his son stretched out upon the altar on the mountains of Moriah, the writer of Hebrews says, in like figure he received him as raised from the dead. That foreshadowed that God offered his son on that hillside and received him back again when he was raised. I could just get happy. I know that's old language when I start thinking about types and shadows. How about Jonah in a fish's belly? As Jonah was three days and three nights in a fish's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The instruments of the tabernacle, the priesthood itself, the Aaronic priesthood. How many know that Christ is the mediator? When you think of priesthood, often you think of mediation. Somebody that's standing, as Jojo said, in the gap. The mediator, Christ Jesus. Paul said there's one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. On and on we could go. But I want to share with you as I begin to shift this sermon for just a few minutes today. Just a few minutes. Let me shift it with you because I think I got your attention. You know we're going somewhere. Because listen, I hadn't even got to the good stuff yet. Wow. This is like a seven-course meal where you're like, I'm ready to go home after the third. I hadn't even got to the, to the main entree right here. We're, we're, we're going to get there, so y'all stay with me for just a minute. Of all the types and shadows, 
perhaps there is one that supersedes them all. And it is that of a lamb. Of a lamb. Particularly even the Passover lamb. The night that the children of Israel were to come out of Egyptian bondage. Their protection and in essence the, their redemption was dependent upon the sacrifice of a lamb and his blood being applied to the doorpost of their houses. Because let me tell you this, the death angel wasn't just going through the land of Egypt. He was going through the good land of Goshen where the children of Israel dwelt as well. And he was looking for the firstborn of every family. But the Bible says that God said that when I see the blood, I will pass. I will pass over you. And Moses said it's a perpetual sacrifice that annually you're to take of this Passover lamb. You're to, you're, to, you're to slay a new Passover lamb that you can be reminded of the night that God brought you out of Egyptian bondage. In essence, that experience typifies our experience in our being born again. We were brought out of bondage into God's dear son and the kingdom of his dear son. So when John was baptizing for a few months that initiated a movement that began to echo throughout the Judean hillsides and he is in the waters of Jordan and people of all stages of life are coming to him from the sinister sinners to the, uh, to the soldiers and even the Pharisees and the lawyers are inquisitive and they ask him, John, are you the Christ? I'm not the Christ. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and unloose his latchet. And he just kept on baptizing, baptizing in water. But one fateful day, as he's standing, I see it this way, as he's standing in the soiled waters of the River Jordan, baptizing just the common folk, he looks up and there, walking is a lone, solitary figure. And then the voice that told him to begin his ministry and to baptize with water, that same voice quickened inside his spirit. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John, come on somebody. John could have reached back into all the types and all the shadows and he could have pulled it forward. But he said, the one that stands out in my mind is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You see, oddly enough, Christ didn't die on the Day of Atonement, but he died on Passover. So Paul would write to the Corinthians, Christ is our Passover sacrifice for us. Passover, what do you mean? The Passover lamb sacrificed for us. Remember what Peter said, 1 Peter 1 and 18, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as of silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot. Come on, are y'all there? Without spot, without blemish. And in Revelation 5 and 6, when John, God unscrolled heaven for a few moments and allowed him to see the glories of God's eternal kingdom, he said, when I looked and I beheld, and in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a, not a lion, but a lamb as it had been slain. Did you know 29 times the book of Revelation identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God? Come on, hear me, hear me know, he is that Lamb of God, isn't he, today? He is the Lamb of God. Now let's turn our t attention to the nativity for just a few minutes. Stay with me. Let's turn to the nativity. Here's another thing I'm learning as I age. 
I could give you a whole list of things that I'm learning as I age. Some are good, some are very awkward. So let's press forward today. <laughs> I'm learning as I study the scriptures that you and I often read the scriptures without the aid of Jewish custom. And because we read the scriptures without the aid of Jewish custom, we read the King James English Bible, we get a little bit of a hint of the culture that they were familiar. Let me give you an example, the bottles of the new wineskin. When you think of bottle, and wine, when we think of bottles that burst, what do you think? Glass bottles. But the author, or Jesus, not the author, but he spoke it. He's speaking of animal skins, right? But we see bottles, so we think glass bottles. Totally different center. You've got to put it in its... Does that make sense? So here I've taken you three things. Prophecies, types, and shadows. And now I'm saying it's very important that we understand customs. So as we look at the image for just a moment, we're familiar with the story, the taxation, Mary and Joseph, pregnant with child, make the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, the... the uh, no room at the end. I, I might comment about that for just a moment. Uh, you know, we're familiar. How many of you like a nativity scene? Probably, every, how, how many of you have a nativity scene probably at your house? That We have one that Alyssa was putting on our mantle last night in the process. And, and you get a lot of different images when you look at it. And the reality is that some of it is biblically accurate and some of it didn't happen the night of his birth. But what's taken, we've put them all together in one compilation to look at it, I guess for the purpose of painting a deeper picture. But, but we just look at it with things. We see the manger, the crib, the star over the stable, the shepherds of all ages beholding him, angels overlooking, the appearance of three magi and their gifts of gold, so, and then frankincense myrrh. Um, so for just a moment, consider this. Just consider as I take you to one particular point that I'm closing with today. First of all, consider the magi. The Bible doesn't say there were three. Did y'all know that? Every nativity you see has three. The Bible says they brought three gifts, but because there were three gifts, we make the association there were three. There could have been 12, Right? Do you see how we just arbitrarily just without aid of the custom? The Magi, though, were probably not even there the night of his birth. Because when you read the scripture, it says that the star settled over the house where he was born. And when they went in, they saw the young child, not the infant, but a child. He could have been a few months old by this time, especially when you put it together with the decree that was made by King Herod to slay all of the children, male children, two years of old and under, in conjunction with the time that the star appeared. And the star didn't light upon that first night in the stable. The star led the Magi to where he was after his birth. Just for clarification, put it, again, we see it all in one image, but if you back it up and look at it almost slide by slide, you'll see that it's a compilation of various thoughts. Now the angels, and here's where it gets interesting. Here's where I want you to stay with it. Here's where it gets interesting. The angels appeared to the shepherds, and they said this. This, this is where it gets interesting. They said, because, you know, first of all, they said, this is what's going They said, unto you this night is born in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And then they said this, this will be a sign to you. The babe is wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And so without directions, they hasten and go and find this child. Now, if you even look at this logically, the city of Bethlehem is swelled by the numbers. Thousands of people have gathered. And it's a large area anyhow. And they don't have a light as of a, uh, the star residing over where he's to be born at or, the, or, or over his birth. So how the Magi followed the star, not the angels. So how did they know where to go to find unless they understood something in the words of the angel, a sign that he would be wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger? That's where we're going to get answered. Have you ever heard of Migdal... Adar. 
You're saying, well, is that a foreign exchange student that's coming to Heber next year? Is that Kiko Hadar's brother that plays for the Razorbacks? I asked Amber that question as we drove to, to, uh, work, uh, to church today. It's church for you, it's work for me. And she said, no, is he new? It's not a person, but it's a place. I want to bring up two, verse, two passages, two verses of Scripture real quickly. Am I wearing y'all away today? Pastor, you're going on overtime. I know, but it's worth it. Stay with me. We're going to conclude in a few minutes. Put up first Micah 5 and 2. Concerning the birth of Jesus, we're most familiar with this verse. And this is the verse of Scripture that even, it, it was a known it was a known, I don't want to say fact, but it was, it was readily understood by the, 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 the teachers of the law during their day that the child, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem because when Herod inquired of the scribes, they turned to this passage and they quoted, Bethlehem, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall be come forth unto one that is to be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been of old from everlasting. So he would be born in Bethlehem. And the city and the region of Bethlehem. You have to understand, Bethlehem is just not like a walled city that we confine it to just the uh, the in city, but it's a, it's a region. It's a it's a it's a period. It's a it, it goes beyond just the houses. It could be the surrounding fields of Bethlehem. But there's another verse that I had never been exposed to, and there's probably just one or two people under the sound of my voice that's ever looked at it. But there's a revelation in a type that's count, that's found in this passage. It's the fourth chapter and the eighth verse. For here is another prophecy about the coming of Messiah and it says and thou O tower of the flock and and that's where in the Hebrew it's Migdal Adar Migdal Adar the tower of the flock the stronghold of the daughter of Zion unto thee shall it come even the first dominion the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem let me tell you real quickly this contrasts a little bit of the image that we have in our mind because many people believe that it was at the tower of the flock that Jesus was born. Not necessarily the stable that sat beside the countryside inn of Bethlehem. There's a different mystery that's about to be unlocked for you today that you need to capture. Let me tell you what the tower of the flock was. The tower of the flock was a watchtower initially, stone watchtower that was erected on the hillside, first primarily used as a military watchtower to look out to see if there would be anything that was coming against the city. Now, this particular tower is mentioned first in Genesis 35, verse 21, concerning Jacob when he's returning from Bethel. And it says this, And Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Adar. And so after Jacob left Bethel, he went to Adar. While there, his wife Rachel, y'all are familiar, being heavy with child of Benjamin, gives birth, she dies, he buries her there in that place, and it's called Bethlehem. So it's in the same region, Bethlehem and the tower. It's perhaps not just in the center of the city, but just on the edge, just outside the city. It's this particular tower that was originally used kind of as a military outpost where people looked for an invading adversary or an enemy. But what happened, though, is that it came to be a place that it was used by the shepherds to watch over their flocks. And so as the sheep were grazing on the hillsides outside of Bethlehem, a shepherd could climb to the upper balcony and there he could look and he could see in the distance his sheep grazing as well as the potential for uh, someone or something coming to steal his flock. Now here's where the mystery 
begins to come to the forefront and we'll conclude. Daryl, join me with the, on, the, on the platform as a prelude to the worship team, if we can, for just a moment of time, as a prelude to the worshiper, whoever's coming with Shane and Deanna today. There is a Jewish historian, listen to this, by the name of Alfred Adersheim, who in the 1800s was steeped in the study of the Jewish Talmud because he was raised as a Jew. And from our experience when we went to Israel, we learned that when they are taught uh, their scholastic studies, um, they don't have a literature book or an English book or a world history. The scriptures, it all, it all fa falls through there from four and five and six years of age. These guys are steeped in the knowledge of their culture and of the Torah and the Talmud. Well, he converts to Christianity. He accepts Christ, and when he does, all the things that he has gleaned is made known to us and given to us through his pen. And this is something that he penned in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, based upon his studies. Because he said this, listen, this is critical. If you don't hear, it, it, don't, don't, don't miss this right here. He said this, that, some, this, that this particular tower was no ordinary tower. And those shepherds were no ordinary shepherds. Because the upper portion of the tower was used to watch over the flocks. But listen to this. The lower portion was used as a birthing room for the ewes. That when, they were, when, they were, when their full time was come to deliver their lambs, that they would bring them into the protection of the bottom portion of the tower so that they could give birth. So it was a birthing room. Now this particular tower lay near the road to Jerusalem. Bethlehem with its close proximity to Jerusalem, four miles south of Jerusalem as a daughter of Zion, had become the holding pen for the sheep that would be sacrificed at the temple, especially for the sheep that were to be used, their lambs, for the Passover lamb. Now, Edersheim concludes that these shepherds were not ordinary shepherds, as we suppose, but these were priestly shepherds that were trained that they were trained in the rabbinical law to identify animals accepted for sacrifice at the temple because thousands and thousands of lambs would be needed for one singular day of Passover. Come on. And so many people would go through the northern fields of Bethlehem to obtain their Passover lamb as they journeyed towards Jerusalem. These rabbinical shepherds were trained to recognize. And when they took that lamb from the delivering mother in order to protect it lest it become wounded or hurt or injured and gain a blemish disqualifying it for sacrifice. They would take the lamb and they would wrap the lamb in swaddling clothes. And then they would lay it in a stall which is the actual word that's translated manger in the Greek is actually also a stall in a particular location. They would place them there until the lamb calmed itself down and got ready to be brought back to its mother. Now, let's see if we can put all this together. When the angel appeared to the disciples in glory and he made an announcement that this will be a sign to you, you will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes immediately. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. They didn't need directions where to go because they knew where the watchtower was. 
They knew where the, the tower of the flock was, and they were also familiar with the writings of the rabbinical leaders of their day that the Messiah's birth would be announced from the tower of the flock. So no wonder they hastened to where he was because they were now in full expectation that the long prophesied and promised Messiah had been born in the tower of the flock wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in the same place that countless Passover lambs had lain for centuries but now the Lamb of God their eyes beheld the Lamb of God are y'all hearing what I'm saying today? So listen to this about Jesus for just a moment. Rather than Jesus being born in a stable at the back of the countryside inn of Bethlehem, nor even one of the common caves used as a stable by the ordinary shepherds, it is far more probable that the Lamb of God was born in the tower of the flock in the fields of Bethlehem because, listen to this, it was that, that particular tower was on the road to Jerusalem. And remember what Jesus, the Bible says, his face was set to go to Jerusalem. He said, for this end, I was. Remember when he stood before Pilate? He said, for this end. He, perhaps he's looking back down the hillside, three and a half miles to the watchtower of the flock, or the, or the, it was the tower of the flock. And he says, to this end, I was born. Wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger, the young infant Jesus is awaiting one day that he is the eternal sacrifice and the eternal Passover before the kingdom of God. So the shepherds discovered, listen, that God's, listen to this, God's prophetical word was fulfilled to exact detail. And in that brief moment, remember what I told you, a type and shadow came together with a prophecy. A type, Jesus was a type, the lamb was a type of his sacrifice. The prophecy was made by Micah. And in that brief moment, surely he was not there, but just a brief moment when they took young Jesus from Mary, they cleaned him and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger. And those two prophecies overlapped. That typology of the old covenant came to pass fulfilling to exact detail. So today, how many of you know the words of John echo loud and clear today? Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Shane, go and join us if you would. Listen, let me tell you today as I'm closing, this was no, that was no ordinary baby. Come on. Come on, oh, Pastor, you're holding me. I know, hold on. There was no, that was no ordinary baby because he was not born in an ordinary stable. So we think well, it was an ordinary stable. No, that's not an ordinary stable. Because he did not experience an ordinary birth. Come on, did he? Here's the one contrast. He did live an ordinary life till he began an extraordinary ministry. Because he would die an extraordinary death at no ordinary place. He would die on the edge of the hillside where thousands of years earlier his type, Isaac, that typified Jesus, asked his father an ordinary question. As they journeyed up the mountains of Moriah, 
Isaac said, Father, we have the wood. Father, we have the fire. The obvious ordinary question, where is the sacrifice? Father Abraham responded to an ordinary question with an extraordinary answer. My son, God will provide himself a lamb. And thousands of years later, on the cross of Calvary, Jesus became our lamb, slain for us. The angel said, this shall be a sign unto you. Would y'all stand and we're going to sing and then I'm going to give an invitation. This Christmas season, when you see that nativity, let your mind, let your mind wrap and envelop around this thought. That in that manger, the blurred image that our nativity scenes give to us today, you will probably not find a singular nativity anywhere that has the tower of the flock. But now you know, in the words of Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. Come on, somebody. Amen. And when you see that nativity, let your mind be reminded. Don't, don't focus on Mary. And don't focus on Joseph. Don't even let your gaze be affixed on the shepherds. Don't let your attention be drawn to the magi, the gold, the frankincense, or the myrrh. But let your mind and your eyes and your thought process be shrouded around uh, the incarnation uh, that Christ is come in the flesh as the Lamb of God to take away the sins uh, of the world. Let's worship for just a minute. I'll give an invitation right at the noon hour today in Jesus' name.